1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Cable, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dina Gilio Whitaker about her 2019 book, As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. Through the unique lens of indigenized environmental justice, the book tells the story of Native people's resistance to environmental injustice and land incursions and is a call for environmentalists to learn from the indigenous community's rich history of activism. Dina Gilio- Whitaker is a lecturer of American Indian Studies at California State University, San Marcos, an independent consultant and educator in environmental justice policy planning, and a member of the Colville Confederated Tribes. She is also co author with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz of All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans, published in 2016. Dina Julio Whitaker, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, John.
1: Before we get into the book, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically how you first became interested in environmental history and environmental justice, or EJ.
2: Sure. Well, first I'll introduce myself properly, Y.P. Snakseok, Iskwist Dina Julia Whitaker, and that is in my um, traditional language, which is called Insoccheen, as uh, I am a descendant of the Sinaikst band of Indians of the Confederation of the Colville Reservation. And uh, I am currently on in Southern California in the traditional and unceded homelands of the ahashiman Nation in what's currently called Orange County. So, um, so that situates me, uh, physically. And the, the way that I uh, become, became interested in, in this particular topic was really as a, a long road of being an activist, um, I came, back or went into the academic world as a non-traditional student Um, being older uh, decided to go back to school after already having had a couple of careers uh, and being really active in native rights issues uh, in the community where i was living in northern california and um, I had always been particularly interested in environmental issues. And so by the time I decided to go back to school later in life, I was pretty clear about what I wanted to study and what my passions were. So I went into Native American studies and was taking as many courses as I could on environmental issues. And um, especially environmental justice. Uh, I had taken a course uh, in as an undergrad in, uh, in the Native American Studies program at the University of New Mexico, where I was, and noticed that there was very little of the literature that the, we were reading that was actually written by Native people um, that, that reflected you know, Native people's experience of environmental justice. It was pretty loose. Um, And that was in like 2007 or so. And then by the time I got into grad school, I took another course in environmental justice. And there in that class, we read absolutely no Native authors, no Native perspectives at all. And, you know, having come out of a Native American studies program and understanding the frameworks that we work within, especially colonialism, um, none of that was in it was uh, incorporated into the EJ literature, and and it seemed like a huge, you know, hole in the literature to me. So I, throughout throughout my grad program, my master's program, I just kept writing about it, doing research papers about indigenous issues related to environmental justice, and then wrote a master's thesis, uh, you know, you know, postulating what environmental justice looks like when you center American Indian people. And this is how I come up with this theory of indigenizing environmental justice, because um, it, it's a very different, it begins with a very different set of assumptions compared to, to the way EJ is conceptualized by other ethnic minority communities um, who don't have you know, different relationships to land or a political relationship to the state. So um, I felt that 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 really like that intervention needed to be made. And so that's eventually what turned into the book.
1: Thanks. So your book joins these two specific fields of study that you just talked about, American Indian history, American Indian studies and environmental justice. So broadly speaking, would you say that you're alone at the intersection of those two fields or is there a is there a long literature, a growing literature that's beginning to speak to them both?
2: I'd say that um, there is a growing literature. I think um, you know there was there was really nothing that it, you know prior to my writing about it, um, especially in my thesis, and then uh, you know which which was the seed for what became the book. There really wasn't anybody writing it in the same way that I was, which which is why it was really kind of scary to write a book like that. Saying something that seemed like the most obvious thing to say, like why hadn't anybody said it yet? Um, and so you know, so it's really scary to go out on that kind of a limb, but um, you know, I've you know come to, to see that that I that there really wasn't anybody who had said it before me, um, not to say that there weren't any anybody or wasn't anybody writing about environmental justice from that American Indian perspective, but it was mostly small case studies, um, things that, you know, pointed to how different EJ is for Native people, but nobody really theorizing it explicitly the way that I had. So um, it seems to have made quite a splash. The book has gotten a lot of attention it's still widely read and um, people are really engaging, engaging it. And um, so I think that, you know, and it's the reviews that it's received are, you know, overwhelmingly positive. So, you know, I think that I was on to something. And, you know, my hope for the book was that it would, you know, it would become a foundation that other people would be able to build on and do better than I did you know, ultimately. So I, that seems, I think that's the direction that it's headed.
1: So you begin the book by laying out a very specific and I think very compelling take on how settler colonialism and environmental degradation are related or even overlapping. So for readers new to the concepts, what is settler colonialism and why is it a helpful framework for understanding the stories that you're telling?
2: So we talk about settler colonialism really as a a structure that is at the root of American society and not just American society, but but several other particular countries like Canada, like Australia and New Zealand, um, societies who were founded um, on European colonialism, but it's a very particular type of colonialism um, that as the you know the scholar Patrick Wolf so now famously said, it's a system that um, that seeks the elimination of the native in order to replace, and so it's always about the acquisition of native land. So it's not just about the exploitation of resources, um, as is the case in other places like in Africa and Asia, where Europeans set up. Uh, systems of economic exploitation for the home country, but what settler colonialism does is it engages in wholesale um, population transfer, and and it's through this that the native, you know, these processes that native uh, populations are eliminated, and you know, so it's about acquiring the land, and um, and so. This the as I argue in the book, this is a very particular type. So it's not just about environmental degradation. So we think about environmental justice the way it's typically conceived of in the literature is that it does, you know, kind of um, hinge on environmental degradation and the the impacts that it has on racialized minorities. Um, but for American Indian populations it's not just about in the degradation of environments, although it's it's certainly key. it's you know important, but it's about about how the dispossession, dispossessing land, genocide, land theft, even indigenous slavery um, has these devastating impacts to native populations um, in ways that they cannot um, sustain themselves. so, um, it's about the, you know, really, it's about the genocidal impacts um, that settler colonialism brings um, through its, you know, uh, these wide varieties of techniques, including scorched earth policies that were used to to dispossess Native people, run them off their lands, um, and so that, you know, white people can can take them over. So why have
1: conventional approaches to... Um, environmental protection and and even writing about environmental protection failed in your view. You make this distinction between the sort of universalizing language of environmental protection on the one hand and then indigenized EJ on the other. Can you explain what you mean there?
2: Well, yeah, it's, it's comes down in my mind. It's really about how you know, when we talk about this concept in environmental justice discourse, you know, which is a theory and, um, and law and policy um, as an EJ as a discipline, it's, it hinges on this idea of environmental racism. So it says that racism, you know, so for the, the disparities and the inequities that people of color, communities of color experience um, that expose them to greater risk and harm are really attributed to racism, this very particular type of racism. Um, and and it makes sense for those communities, but for indigenous communities, like the, you know, resorting to or defaulting to uh, a racial analysis is not broad enough when you're talking about, uh, you know, genocide and land theft the the settler colonial project was never just about race racism. It was about land. That's the irreducible factor in all of this, that native people were targeted, not because they were of a certain race, um, but because they owned the land because they had the land and they were obstacles to, to, um, to imperialism to European and later American imperialism. So, Um, so that's really the, the big, the big issue here that we cannot, that it's never been our American Indian relationships to the U S to the state has never been based solely on race. It's been based on other political kinds of, um, assemblages and, um, and realities and law. So, uh, so, It's, you know, to reduce it just to race, to make it just about that is really um, it's 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 harmful to Native people, actually. So building
1: on that a little bit and you're in your second chapter, which is called Genocide by any other name, you discuss the ways that settler encroachment, in your words, interrupted the sociological context for collective life characterized by human responsibilities to each other and to other non-human relatives in their respective ecological niches. And elsewhere in the chapter, you lay out the case that environmental injustice against American Indians flows directly from the logic of elimination and fits a certain criteria for being considered genocide, specifically that it destroyed the foundations of national life for native people. So can you help us understand the sort of totalizing picture of social disintegration that you're painting here, um, especially by invoking genocide?
2: Yeah, you know, and it's it's uh, you know that is if we're looking at if we if we accept that settler colonialism is this this ongoing impulse to eliminate native people in uh, with these various, as Patrick Wolf talked about, technologies, technologies of elimination, um, it happens in all of these different ways and and it and it targets them. For you know, for removing them as obstacles to the progress of the state, well, um, you know, th- there's the paradox of that is that although that impulse is always already there, right, because of the the way that the state is structured, because of the logics that the state is founded on, um, it's never complete. That's the that's the paradox paradox of it is that. Settler colonialism is always unfinished business. This is how scholars write about it. So even though there is this ongoing um, project to to interrupt the the national existence of, and really to 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 exterminate the national uh, existence of native people, this collective continuance, as Kyle White says that's that's directly from his language um there is nonetheless the fact that you know genocide um is never really fully complete either even though we can say that that in the u.s the you know if we look at a population uh in 1492 which is really only speculation of what it can be but a reasonable well, a reasonable number that has been accepted is between seven and 10 million people on, you know, on the North American continent um, or, or in the, what's the U S. So if we get, you go from there in 1492 to nine to 1900, where the American Indian population is um, has fallen to its lowest where there's, you know, less than 250,000 native people remaining that's an over a 95% genocide. That's a 90 population collapse of over 95%. So um, but it's not complete. Right? Cuz there are still you know people are still surviving and so you know a century um, and a quarter later our populations are rebounding, we are still here, we have made a you know, we have made progress. By no means is settler colonialism over. Um but uh, but you know here we are with faced with this paradox that you know we have survived um you know we are resilient communities despite this ongoing the ongoing you know freight train of um the settler colonial Eliminate, you know, impulse to eliminate. So, um, I think I kind of rambled on a little bit. I don't know if that addressed <laughs> the question.
1: <laughs> no, it's perfect.
2: Uh, specifically, it's perfect. but
1: thank you, thank you. Um, so, so, you know, like other historians and scholars of Native American studies, uh, you also found it necessary in your book to briefly recount sort of the full history. Uh, the long arc of U.S. federal Indian policy, for your readers, from from the days of of, uh, warfare, genocidal warfare, to termination and relocation, to the slow shift toward self-determination. So why is that specific history um, so important to making the broader point that you're making, the history of federal Indian policy?
2: It's necessary because if we're talking about this structure, this thing we call settler colonialism, it's critical to understand that it's the legal system that maintains it. Um, Well, it's not the only thing that maintains it. I mean, it's embedded in everything, in every aspect of the sociopolitical, um, you know, landscape of the U S from popular culture to law. And, but it's the law that is the scaffolding that maintains this juridical um, formation of the settler state, and and so, you know, we have to talk about how that initially happens. You know, through the from the very beginning in 1823, when with the first uh, Supreme Court case that argues, you know, about American Indian issues, and of course it's about land because the U.S. is a Fledgling country, it's still new. It's it's got to create clear titles to land for Europeans, um, and so they know John Marshall, the, you know, Chief Justice John Marshall, and the Supreme Court knows they have to they have to establish this, and so they set out to do this by by articulating you know officially into the American legal system this thing called the doctrine of discovery. Um, which was the invocation of centuries of European um, Christian European um, uh, practices, going all we can trace this all the way back to the Crusades, you know, to the 11th century um, and the beginning of you know the the rise of the Catholic Church and its its imperialism and the way it controls Europe and so. Um, by by the fifteenth century, um, it's fully fully ingrained, fully articulated in the Catholic Church, and um, and its and its structure is really in these papal bulls, the several of them that get created, and so this is what John these papal bulls really is about justifying the. And rationalizing the violent taking, European taking of land of, uh, you know, savage, heathen savages in, you know, in order to justify the conquering of those lands, even though they had never even been there before. That's what's so crazy about it. Um, they justify the taking of the lands before they even know, before they even get there, you know, a half a century. And so, all of that, so all of this incredible, this very archaic um, um, ideologies and rooted in, you know, Ro- middle age Roman Catholic doctrine is, is what gets invoked in American law. And to this day, you know, and so the, this doctrine of discovery is to this day the foundation of the, the system of federal Indian law. And finally, you know, we're finally starting to get more of that uh, uh, that attention being paid to, but it's um, profoundly um, undemocratic, you know, to say nothing about being profoundly unjust. That this is this is what we what we live with as Native people. We are still guided by these, uh, you know, archaic, very racist, very uh, you know, crazy doctrines that nobody else, nobody else in the U.S. is exposed to. So, um, so, so federal Indian policy, I mean, that's just the beginning of it. I and mean, of course, there's a huge, a whole realm, a whole world, almost, you know, almost two centuries at this point of, of case law and Supreme Court decisions that have maintained this system. In um, in in very um, in in the words of one or more than one um, you know legal analyst, it's schizophrenic because in you know on one hand um, it's like we have the doctrine of discovery. We have other very problematic, very um, oppressive uh, legal. Uh, doctrines, but then on the other hand, we have you know as the 20th century wears on, we have you know more rights incorporated into this body of federal law. So it's you know, schizophrenic is, is really the right word to to describe it. And so um, so this is what we're subject to and some of these laws, and some of them are pretty recent laws too that that perpetuate these environmental injustices. Um, you know ongoingly so it's Here. not just the nineteenth century it's well into the to the late 20th century where some of these um, decisions uh, su- uh, very harmful Supreme Court decisions continue to to hamper native efforts for environmental justice
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
1: your uh, third chapter which is which is fascinating explores the relationships between resource extraction the technologies of the industrial revolution and economic development as they as they pertain to native people so help us understand a few examples of the extreme impacts that these things had on native lifeways
2: so the way that i usually talk about this when i'm teaching is to think about how the narratives, you know, the master narratives of the U.S. are all bound up in narratives of progress, European progress, European genius and superiority, especially compared to that of indigenous people, and um, and so this is as you know as the the European march westward on the continent, you know, to to conquer the West, you know, to to tame the land and all of these. Language that we're so in, you know, in conditioned to to um, believe in. Um, It's these narratives of progress about you know taming the land and and you know bringing it under control. um, You know through farming, through the building of infrastructure projects like dams um, and railroads, which of course open up the whole what the whole rest of the continent for this this expansion for this massive, um, you know, migration of people. Um, These, all of this technology of the Industrial Revolution, while it's bringing life for settler populations, it's bringing death for indigenous populations, especially, uh, you know, because of the railroads, um, which, you know, which enable the flooding of, of, uh, settlers into native lands, mostly illegally, because, you know, huge tracts of land were, were reserved in treaties. Um, but it was always violated by the constant incursion of settlers into those lands, but also, um, because of things like the building, these dam building projects, which hasn't received, uh, nearly enough attention. It's starting to receive attention now, but Really, hard, very few people had written about it this way um, in the past. But understanding, you know, the way that things like the, the Pick-Sloan Act uh, on the Missouri River in the, the early 1940s, you know, resulted in the, the damming, uh, you know, the building of five dams, which ultimately displaced thousands of Lakota people. Um, and, you know, and force them off their lands, force them to relocate where they, you know, and where they've lost, you know, timber resources and villages and stores and food sources and medicine resources, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and then if we look at the, the, on the other hand, the Columbia River watershed, which is where my ancestors are from. Um, where dam building it wasn't just a handful of dams but you know on in that watershed and uh, and its tributaries you see over 60 dams have been built and that results in not not so much displacement although that happened but it results in ecological impacts that we are still seeing today with the collapse of salmon populations um, and uh, and so it's the 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 damming and the flooding, the the damming of the rivers that leads to the flooding of uh, fishing resources of salmon fisheries for Native people is what rips the heart out of these cultures um, who whose cultures revolve around uh, salmon, and so. So like on our reservation our the Grand Coulee Dam on built without our permission on the Calvo reservation in the 1930s um, results in the flooding of our major cultural site the Kettle Falls and the same thing happens in the lower Columbia plateau with the building of the Dalles Dam and the flooding of Celilo Falls. So um, so we have you know we don't see salmon that we haven't seen salmon come up to our, you know, as far as where we're at on the reservation since then. So it's almost a century. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the salmon populations do have done nothing but, but decline to the point where it's, um, it's, a, it's a crisis now that even, uh, you know, that environmentalists are signaling and, and even Republican, there's a story just today in Time Magazine about it. Um, talking about um, the collapsing salmon populations on the Salmon River in Idaho, and how that's impacting the Nez Perces, the Shoshones, and the um, the Coeur d'Alene people, um, but also how you know it's leading to these strange uh, coalitions and or alignments of people, like you know Native people with Republican um, representatives who are also fighting to for dam removal to restore the salmon runs in, in those areas because it's gotten to be so critical. So, um, so yeah, and there's, and there's a countless other examples that can be named, you know, uranium mining in on the Colum- the Colorado plateau and the impacts that, you know, uh, the uranium mining have had on Navajo and Pueblo populations um which is ongoing as well, even though uranium mining is no longer, it's the, the all of these abandoned uranium mines which continue to contaminate the lands and water and air of the people who live there. So um, you know, these are are just there are countless other ex- examples of how development uh, on indigenous, you know, traditional lands continues to deliver, um, all these, you know, incredibly horrible and damaging impacts. Well,
1: and one of the, uh, one of, one of the more interesting parts of the chapter is when you, um, when you discuss the ways in which some native people in Indian country now fi- find their economic livelihood tied to extractive industries. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you make sense of this?
2: Right. It's really, it's not easy to make sense of, especially, uh, you know, at, on a surface level glance, um, when you when you think about people who have been confined to some of the the worst, most undesirable lands, it was the you know these reservations or the lands that white people didn't want. They saw um, no value in them. They were fallow or they were undesirable. They were seen as wastelands. They were, you know, they were the lands that didn't. Seem p- productive or you know worthwhile to them, so you know put the Indians on that land. Um, so and in in many cases they were already the home territories of those of those tribes, just not the only the only home territory, um, which would be the case, for example, with the Navajo. So the, so the Navajo, you know, the Navajo reservation is the biggest reservation of all in the U.S. Um, and you know it's been characterized as a wasteland, as Tracy Boyle said, talks about in her book. It's a wasteland. It's a national sacrifice zone for uranium mining. Um, and and you know isn't it you know surprising that you know then there's uranium gets found, but it's not the it's not the Navajo that make the choice in the 1950s to extract that resource. Um, it's the federal government as their trustee who makes that choice. They're powerless, really. It just provides jobs for them. Is really all it does. But then, when you look at at, at other cases, for example, with uh, at Fort Berthold um, uh, in North Dakota, the reservation uh, there, these, you know, let's and let's contextualize it by saying that Indian people are the poorest of the poor have always been the poorest of the poor in the U S you know, on these very rural environments where there is, you know, very little prospects for economic development. So, um, so the, so what happens in places like North Dakota in 2006, we have the Bakken oil field, the Bakken oil boom, you know, there's, we, there's wow. Wow. Who knew there was, well, it's oil under there, but it's not easy to get to. So the only way that you can get to it is through this fracking, fracking technology. And so, you know, this is all the the Fort Berthold reservation people have to develop, to, to get themselves out of poverty and to, you know, build a life with any kind of dignity and economic resilience at all. And so that's what they do. They develop they develop this uh, these lands through this, you know, horrible technology. It's, you know, as I write about it in the book, it's sort of Faustian bargain, you know, it's a day, de- a deal with the devil. Um, it's, it's, it's a bad choice among, well, I mean, I can't even say that. Like, I don't even want to, you know, give it a value judgment. It's just a, a the decision that they made, but it has come with huge costs. Um, there's a, there's a film called A Different American Dream that I really recommend. That really uh, that looks at the history or this reality of what the impacts of um, fracking at Fort Berthold has had. Um, they it, it's had profoundly negative impacts on the land uh, and also the health of the people there. And many of the people seem to be. You know, just seem to be living with a lot of regret that they made that kind of decision. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's about how the kinds of choices that Native people are are forced into. That um, that this is how it this is how it looks to me. Like I I don't want to be the one to to say to to say it was you know a, a you know, a bad choice or an unethical choice. Um, You know, it was a choice that they made because there weren't, you know, better choices to make. So that's how I understand it. I
1: understand. So so some readers might be surprised to learn um, that the mainstream environmental movement and Native people's movements for decolonization and environmental justice have not always seen eye to eye. In fact, you write that the environmental movement was deeply rooted in white supremacy. Why have these two movements not always gotten along, and and are things getting better?
2: Well, the you know you have to trace the roots of the you know the so-called in, the environmental movement really going back to the conservation and preservation movement of the mid nineteenth century, and um, of course during that time you know the with the the beginning of the National Park Service in 1872, the, uh, you know, the, the first one is Yellowstone. And um, and it's in 1872, this is at the height of the Indian Wars. This is the height of the American military pursuit of, especially in this part of the, the country, um, people who you know, who are who are migratory. They have ways of life where they follow the seasons. They, they live in different places, different times of the year to, you know, based on, um, on food cycles and ceremonial cycles and things like that. And so they, but, but the federal government, the U S is aggressively rounding them up to confine them to reservations, which they don't want to do, which the native people don't want to do. And so, um, so this is the context that these national parks are created within. It's based on the dispossession of native peoples from their lands. Or as Mark David Spence says, he said, those, this, this concept of wilderness, which needed to be protected, first had to be created. Because there are, you know, we have to talk about the, this concept of the virgin wilderness, you know, the pristine myth. Um, about how, uh, you know, land seen as wilderness is always, always devoid of human presence, which has never been the case on this continent. And, and that's the important point that, you know, the creating of these so-called wilderness spaces was completely opposite of, of how Native people lived on and used the land, so, um, so this is the origins of the the conservation world, which then becomes, uh, you know, or f- sometimes called first wave environmentalism, and then by second wave environmentalism in the mid nineteen uh, mid twentieth century, um, you know, all of those logics of of white supremacy and you know, which is always about. Uh, again, you know, going back to the elimination of native people and the vanishing native trope and all of these kinds of um tropes and stereotypes and logics are all at the at the root of all of these things. And so it it gets it gets carried forward, all of this un it's unconscious, you know, the way that native people are constructed as inferior in need of civilizing, um you know, which justifies, the the settler colonial project um, is all still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. Nobody's dismantled it. And so it all gets embedded into the the, um, environmental movement, even though, um, you know, this new kind of counterculture, you know, the counterculture movement, which is, you know, all entrenched and interconnected to the environmental movement, um, they don't, they're well-meaning. Right, it's well-meaning. They're looking to Indians. They they're realizing that Native people, you know, had all the answers all along. They knew how to live sustainably and all of this, but, um, but they've still brought all that all that entitlement with them into um, their their environmental projects. And so, um, this you know supposed newfound respect for Native people gets you know, it comes out in all these convoluted ways, like with, you know, the crying Indian and, you know, 1971, with um, with this, you know, ironized Cody, this imposter, this imposter, but he's the Indian now that's the stand-in for the environmental movement. Um, this the so-called ecological Indian stereotype. So this is just a regurgitation of the noble savage stereotype of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and so, uh, so, and really nobody had had written much about that either, which I had, which had surprised me when I was doing the research, it was something that I'd been wanting to write about. Um, and it's turned out that, you know, with the book, that chapter, um, has gotten more attention than, than any of the chapters I would say by far. um, yeah, and I'm not really sure why other than I think it took <laughs> it took people by surprise um, to have it framed in, in that way, because nobody thinks of the environmental movement as being particularly harmful or, you know, um, offensive. But, you know, pe- when people of color write about it, it's a much different story. And, you know, understanding that there's nothing in the U.S., there's nothing in the U.S. that has not escaped the colonial logics of indigenous elimination
1: well and and while we're on that topic interspersed throughout the book are references to standing rock and hashtag no dakota access pipeline um, no dapl these these obviously serve to remind readers that the struggles that you're writing about are ongoing um often even involving non-native people but you paint for us a scene from Standing Rock that is a little bit cringeworthy and it involves an October, 2016 meeting, not with Lakota elder Faith Spotted Eagle, but with a white woman. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened in that scene?
2: Yeah. So, um, a a white woman sets herself up as a, a teacher who's going to impart indigenous wisdom on some women in this women's gathering. And this was a story that was, rec- I was not there, but it was recounted to me by somebody that I know who was there and, and watched it happen. Um, and it was not the only experience of its kind. There was, especially as the population of Standing Rock became, became more crowded, um, during, you know, like during the that Thanksgiving weekend of 2016, Um, It just, it began attracting more and more people who came to Standing Rock from all kinds of places around the world, but especially in the US and people who were coming, you know, again, with probably good intentions, but when they get there, it becomes about something else. Um, It becomes about their own personal journeys and their own spiritual awakenings and their own um, values. And, um, and so it, because of that, like there's the, the, the loss of sight about what's really happening there. And it's about the protection of standing rocks land and the water. Uh, and so, so this is, you know, again, like how, how all of the, the subconscious unconscious subconscious assumptions that, are indoctrinated into the American mind come out like it's inescapable until it's, uh, ex- made explicit and made obvious all of these attitudes of entitlement and, um, and superiority really, uh, come out in one way or another. And, and this is, this is what happens. Um, and 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 in that chapter is also how I talk about you know it ca- it came out um, around women's issues in particular with that one story um, is one example, but um, how the the disrespecting of Standing Rock and you know Native protocols and ways of doing things were subverted and ignored by people who felt that the rules didn't apply to them, even though they're in, you know, they're in the context of this kind of sovereign territory, this of Lakota land and this, this um, encampment, Um, you know, too often those values, all of that went out the window when those worldviews didn't, didn't serve the white population. So, um, so, yeah, it was it was interesting to hear those stories because, I mean, it was, you know, I was there at Standing Rock. I, I didn't go for very long. I was there for just a couple of days um, during that Thanksgiving weekend when it was so crowded. Um, but it definitely did have that feel as some people described it kind of more as a music festival, like when it got to that point, it was so crowded. People were just going for the spectacle of it. Um, maybe they were also, you know, wanting to fight the, fight the man and, you know, the the fossil fuel industry, but, um, but it, it was just, I think the spectacle of it that ended up becoming a distraction, I think.
1: Your book was published in 2019. And since then we've seen some pretty disheartening news on the climate front, um, as we're speaking tonight, uh, climate legislation is stalled in Congress. Um, what do you hope that readers who pick this book up, uh, this year today will, will learn, will, will maybe do, uh, after having read your book?
2: I think that what I hope that people will, that it will change minds. That's, that's what I hope for. I mean, I don't know, I can't tell people what to do, but what I, but I do think that there needs to be, we need to basically dismantle settler colonialism. And, you know, that's not something that's going to happen overnight and, and it may never happen, but, but for people to be aware of what this thing is that we call settler colonialism and this as a system of power, um, and how it harms not just native people, but but a whole lot of other people too. And you know, to 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 reorient, to get the education, people don't know what they don't know. And so the goal of the book was to to expose them to the stuff that they don't know so that you can then start thinking in a different way. And when you start thinking in a different way, you can start advocating for different kinds of policies, start making different kinds of decisions. Um, So and, you know, a huge piece of this is um, is teaching people that Native people lived on the land, Native people as fundamentally sustainable societies who've been on the continent for at least 15,000 years you know, that's the definition of sustainability. And so it's the knowledge that's inherent in native cultures and native societies that hold keys to any kind of answers that we might be able to think of to get us through. If we, if the goal is to build a sustainable society that can support humans, it's going to have to be through adopting different kinds of values because the values and the philosophies that got us to this of, you know, the, that Europeans brought with them is what got us to this point. It's the values of land as land as private property and, and the value of it for only what you can extract from it. Um, This is why we got, why we have climate change. And, you know, ultimately, and so it's those values that need to be dismantled and replaced with values that, um, you know, I mean, I argue, I'm not the only one that argues this, but, you know, the the ways that Native people have lived on the earth have been through understanding their rela- their relationship to land through reciprocity and respect and responsibility. So that's, uh, you know, that's really, I think the goal, that's the conversation that I want to have, like, okay, let's expose like, this is how we got here. Now, how do we move forward um, in a way um, that there is actual hope for the human race? So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's big picture. It's big picture stuff.
1: We've taken up quite a bit of your time today. So before we let you go, what's what's next for you? Are there any new projects in the works?
2: Yes, there is. Um, Kind of jumping off the last book, I'm working on a new book. I'm under contract with Beacon Press for a a new book that takes that concept of um, race, you know, and and, um, environmental justice and environmental racism. And how I've talked about it being really um, too limited of of an analysis for native people by understanding what privilege looks like through the lens of settler colonialism um, and, and, and what accountability looks like, like how do we address, how do we get to a society that's actually accountable um, for not just uh, its racist foundations, but it's, foundations of land theft and genocide and what is what does that look like that's because for me that's the elephant in the living room we can talk about racial justice in this country to some degree you know more more than ever but but really it's the the elephant in the room is about living on stolen land like and what does that mean for everybody well how do we have that conversation
1: That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for being on today. Um, Hope to have you back when the new book's out, Um, (laughs) but thank you very much and, and take care.
2: Thanks, John.